Hello and welcome to the Every Woman podcast. I'm your host, Anna. And every month we'll be bringing you the stories, insights and opinions of inspiring people in business on a wide range of topics, asking the questions you want the answers to and doubtless prompting some more in the process. Today, for International Women's Day 2019, we're talking to Russ Shaw, founder of Tech London Advocates and Global Tech Advocates, and winner of the Male Agent of Change Awards at the 2018 FDM Every Woman in Technology Awards. So welcome to the studio, Russ. Thank you, Anna. Great to be here. So let's start out with a with a context question. Why is diversity such an important issue for you personally? Looking at having worked in the technology sector for many years, it is a sector that is woefully underrepresented by women, blacks, minorities, etc. And it's immensely frustrating. And a key driver for me is that we know, we have so much evidence that basically says diverse companies, diverse management teams, diverse boards do so much better. Why? They build better products, they build better services. And so as I, as I move around the sector and meet people, I know that we're doing well, but I believe that we could do so much better if we brought many more diverse uh, people from all walks of life into the sector. And, and for me, a key driver for that is bringing more women into the sector. We, you know, 17% of the tech sector is made up of women. And that's just terrible. It's yeah. awful. And we need to change that. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you say, you know, uh, that, that uh, there are many, there, you know, there's a strong business case, let alone a yes. more imperative. And specifically in, in an industry such as tech, which is built on innovation. I mean, I've read statistics that seem to imply there's a correlation between diversity and innovation. Mm-hmm. Why then is tech so, I mean, it, it is a white bromance, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> Why is it? It has been. I mean, it's, I think historically, if you look at where a lot of the talent comes from. These are people who've studied science, maths, engineering, et cetera. And you know, those sectors have att- attracted many more men and many more white men over the years. And there are drives and there are initiatives underway to encourage women, younger women, girls, people uh, from the minority ethnic communities, you name it, to come into the sector. But there is that inbuilt barrier that basically says, you know, if I am a young woman going through college, university, whatever, I'm not really interested in those subjects. So we've got to change that. And, you know, I am married to a mechanical engineer, you know, she worked on oil rigs in the North Sea. So, you know, she waxes lyrical about her experience. And I think we need many role models out there today, women who've been successful in their careers to say, actually, don't have these normal stereotypes about what it means to go into technology. Easy to say, hard to do. I understand that. But we have to have a collective drive to do that. Mm. And, and, and we'll talk about, we'll come on to mm. that more specifically. Um, but I mean, it's interesting that it is a historic problem that's become a structural one, if you like, hasn't yes, it? Yes. And I think the structural aspect of this is also driven by, when I look at the technology community, it's driven by the investor community as well. That is a big issue for us. I think there was a report last year from a, a VC called Atomica that something like, you know, 93% of all funding, European funding that went into European startups came f- to all male uh, founding teams. Mm. And you just think, 
in this day and age? Really? Yeah, but yeah. that's what's going on. And that perpetuates the problem because you've got startups and scale-ups that are getting funding. You know, they're, they're basically white men. You know, they're investors, rightfully so, saying, go out there and hire the best talent. But they're going to the people that they know. They're going to the recruitment pools that they know. And it just keeps going on and on and on. Now, the other challenge is, is that many of these companies have been successful and they've done well. But you step back and look at this and say, but how much better could they be doing if they built diversity in right from the start? Um, there's a company called Slack, who I, I've met their CTO, and they are one of the few companies out there that I think have done incredibly well where they built in diversity as they were building the company. And part of their rationale was, you know, we did this when the company was at five or 10 people. We know that if we were at 200 and started to do it, it would be that much harder to make that change. So there are good examples out there of companies that can do this, but they're the exception rather than the rule. And that's what we collectively need to change. I mean, that's quite an awareness when you're setting up um, Slack's the messaging. Uh, yeah, platform, that's right. Yes, yeah, yeah, so it's massive. I it mean, is it's massive. Really big, and they've uh, done really well. And, you know, probably attributed to the fact that they've got a really diverse team that they've built right from the start. Mm. So what do we need? I mean, we talk about collective action. Let's talk about that and, and then the male piece in this. Mm. I mean, you have talked about how men are part of the problem and must be part of the solution. Yes. And I think everyone would agree with this. Surely yes. this is a, you know, but I mean, tell me what, what do you see in terms of uh, male role models and, uh, you know, how they can bring about change in what is quite an entrenched situation? Yes. I, I think men have a huge role to play. And I think part of our challenge is explaining to people that men have been part of the problem. They now need to be part of the solution. You know, we have a wonderful Tech London Advocates Women in Tech group. And what I've seen over the years, the woman who leads that, Sarah Luxford's done a great job. More and more, at more and more of the events now, I see more men. Because I see more men basically saying, I know I should be doing something. I, I believe that we have to make this change, but I don't understand what I need to do. And I think when we can work with other men to say, look, it could be as simple as mentoring a woman in your organization, you know, taking somebody under your wing, sharing with them, working with them, and being open and frank with them about the issues and challenges that they will face and that you know, if it's a woman coming to you, having her sit down and being very open with you so she can hear from the, you know, the male's perspective, what is going on. Even at that micro level, if that happens more regularly, I think we'll start to see the change happen. Will it be fast enough? I don't think it will. I was going to say that, you know, do we have to think in terms of small increments here or, you know, we'd like a, a big... I think the increments are good and they're important. And the more we build up those examples of men and women coming together with, you know, both men and women being role models, that's great. You know, to me, there's going to have to be a carrot and stick approach. So I, I've been pretty outspoken on saying that I think we need to have targets and quotas as well. And I know I run into resistance when I say that, but... I often say, look, I don't, I don't want to be here in 10 years' time talking about the same issue and the numbers not having moved at all. Or having an intellectual discussion about how we might change it, but with no metrics to understand exactly. whether it's changed. I mean, I was, I was going to ask you, how can we best measure progress in your opinion? Well, I think, you know, there are things that are happening out there. You know, uh, the UK, you know, last year was, I think, the first developed country that I'm aware of that has actually been disclosing the gender pay issue. And, you know, we were all very horrified yeah. at what came out of that. Yeah. But I also had, you know, colleagues and friends in America saying, 
wow, this is impressive that companies, I think it's companies over 250 employees mm -hmm. now have to do this. And I'm saying, well, actually, it should be all companies that have to do this. It shouldn't just be those that are larger in size and scale. So let's see the magnitude of the problem. And then let's figure out how do we make that change? So I think that was a, it, it's a good step, but again, it's not enough. And I do think that as companies come to grips with this, they shouldn't sugarcoat it. I mean, we did an exercise through the TLA Women in Tech Group where we did a number of case studies and we looked at a, how a number of different organizations presented themselves with this information. Mm -hmm. And you'd read some of these things and you would just want to vomit and say, you know, you, you're making this sound like you're doing all of these great things and have been, but your numbers haven't moved for the past two or three years. Why not? So I'm not adverse to naming and shaming companies that are not doing a good job. The flip side is, let's put on a pedestal those companies that are working hard to move the needle, that are saying, we know we need to change this. These are the activities that we've got in place, and here are the results that we're getting. That, to me, is one key step. And then I think, you know, let's, let's put in some quotas and targets and challenge companies to say, you know, in five years' time, you know, you need to move from X to why. One of the things that we've done in Tech London Advocates, we've, we've just launched a campaign called The Road to One Million. And this is about creating a million digital and tech jobs in London by 2023. And the current number is about 320,000 with another 48,000 vacancies on top of that. So we're struggling to fill these jobs. But the focus of the campaign is very much along the lines of bringing more women, people uh, from minority backgrounds into the sector, looking at the LGBT sector and saying, how can we expose companies, startups and scale-ups to different recruitment pools where that talent does sit out there? It might be harder to reach, or they might not be fully trained the way you need them to be, but they have some skills that could be relevant for your company. That's the paradigm shift. But within that, we've said by 2023, we want to move from 17, 18% women in tech to 33%. That's a massive shift. Mm. I hope we can do it. Um, it's going to be a challenge. But if we can set ourselves the targets now to do that, hopefully many companies will be able to come back and say, here's what we did. Here's how we move the needle. It's not easy. There are real challenges here. But you know, even if we don't get quite close to that 33%, if we got to 25 or 30%, that would be fantastic because we've been sitting at 17 or 18% for a number of years and we're all pulling our hair out saying, why are we not moving the needle? Well, that's it, isn't it? You By setting a target, you've got something to hit for a start. Yes. You also find out what works and what doesn't. Yes. And and I, I'm interested in this idea of, you know, it was interesting how uh, companies position themselves with regard to their gender pay gap, because some of them were really apologetic, some of them shrunk, and some of them took it as an opportunity mm -hmm. and a gift, actually, to then be able to move forward, which yes. I would imagine you would need to do. I wanted to return to you to this idea of the, you know, the entries into tech and the mm. different pipelines. Yes. Because it strikes me that, you know, we've talked about uh, historically STEM subjects being very male heavy and very male dominated. I mean, do we need to start the shift at school? Does everything start at the education level, including the expectations? Yes, absolutely. We, I mean, we need a fundamental rethink in our educational system about these types of opportunities um, and to encourage girls from an early age to think about this. And, you know, the good news is we see in the primary school sector and even going up through secondary school, you do see 
young women and girls embracing math, embracing sciences, but something then happens kind of from that GCSE to that A-level space where it really drops off significantly. And we have to work so much harder to get young women to say, yes, I'm going to keep going with sciences and with maths. But the other thing that I also say is, look, don't be put off if you're not interested in maths and sciences, but still want to work in the digital and technology sector because there are other opportunities for you. So, um, you know, we sometimes use the word STEAM instead of STEM and, and, and art. And, mm. and the arts is clearly important. And I still encourage people to say, look, if you're interested in the arts, if you're interested in design, fantastic. Don't let that preclude you from a career in technology. Why? Some of the jobs that we're struggling to fill are user experience, user interface engineers who have great artistic and design backgrounds. That could be a great path for you into the sector. You know, people who are just afraid of maths, for example, I think, you know, I say to people, look, there are people working in the sector who are project managers. You don't need to have deep experience in the sciences <laughs> or maths. Project managers are required in every industry. And I know in the technology sector here in London, we're struggling to fill those roles. Mm. Project managers, program managers, product managers, where you're looking at product from end to end, you're doing it in a technology environment, but you still have skills that would be required of you from any industry. So there are lots of opportunities out there if you don't want to be a hardcore coder or programmer or engineer, there's still great opportunities for you. And that's also part of the shift that we need to get infiltrated into our education system. You know, I've, I was part of something called the, the Skills Commission launched by London First last year. And we spent a lot of time with career advisors who work with 14 and 15 year olds. And the private sector has a really important role to play with those people to say, we know and we can see the jobs of the future that are coming. We don't know definitively, but those of us who work in tech know that in the next three to five years, these are the types of jobs that are going to be created that are not there today. We need to feed that back to the career advisors who are working with 14 and 15 and 16 year olds to say, this is the type of opportunity you can have. Yes, maths and sciences are important, but you know, if you're interested, these are some of the other subjects that you might want to experience. Or go get some work experience to see if this is something that can change your mindset. We have to have a concerted effort to work at that level. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's integrating technology into a worldview, isn't it? it Rather is. than having this, again, this historical, yes. you know, I think because technology has moved so fast, I mean, you know, things have changed in 20 years that you could never imagine. We're catching up. We are catching always, up, Anna. And you know what? The speed of change is only going to accelerate. I look at the next five to 10 years. <laughs> it is terrifying. It's exciting and terrifying, terrifying at the yeah. same time. I know that a lot of the job growth that we're going to see is going to be in the digital and technology sector. It will probably be at the expense of low-skill, what I call non-digital offline jobs. And you just have to look at what's going on at the high street. This is a premonition of what's coming. Big high street retailers are struggling. Lots of people are being made redundant. How do we capture those people? And it won't apply to all of them, but how do we retrain and reskill some of them? Many of them are going to be women in low-skill roles. How do we work with them to say, look, there are some things that we can train you on. You, you, you may never be a Python coder, but there are some other opportunities for you. And that is where we have to collectively work harder. You know, you may not have the right skill set today, but over the next five to 10 years, let's work with you 
to really reskill you for those jobs of the future. And if we can do that, that will go, I think, some of the way towards solving the shortage of talent issue and the lack of diversity issue that we have. If we get it wrong, I'm worried that we're going to have a train wreck on the horizon. Mm. And also, actually, another aspect I wanted to talk to you about, which, again, if we get it wrong, has great implications, is is the whole, I mean, going to the actual coding and, and product design, the lack of females creating technology. Uh, there's a real bias, isn't there, uh, towards sort of the way that men see the world being encoded into the technology that we then use in society. And with the advent of artificial intelligence and machine learning, if we don't tackle those both conscious and unconscious biases sooner rather than later, this is going to be perpetuated mm. indefinitely. And so not only do we need more people to come into the sector now, there's this greater sense of urgency that if we don't, when data rules the world, and it's already starting to rule the world, when it really rules our lives, those biases will be built in. And you know, a whole generation of women of people from all backgrounds could be locked out because it's that white male bias that is sitting in the data and the analytics that will perpetuate things. And, and those of us who are closer to that can see that and realize that, which is why people like me are here talking to you now to say, we've got to change this now. It's mm. urgent now. We can't do it in five years. It's got to happen today. And we can't uh, sort of just tickle it. We have to go for it. We have to do some concerted efforts, like you say, whether that's targets, whether yeah. that's... Look, people know. are going to be made uncomfortable by this, and particularly yeah. white men are going to be made uncomfortable by this. I see that. You know, I'm a white male in my 50s. There are going to be things that will make me personally uncomfortable. But we, if we also look and step back and say, but there's a bigger reason why we're doing this, we have to get on board here. You know, white men have had greater privileges over many, many years, and that has been inherent in our society and our economy time to change that. You know, I have three sons, you know, they will hit this much more than I'm hitting this, but they know that and understand that. So there's a big educational piece here that says, we got to level the playing field. But if we level the playing field correctly, the growth, the, the profitability, the success of more businesses will make sure that there's room for all in this employment future. Again, coming back to where we started this, those companies that have diverse teams, management teams and boards do far better than those that do not. So the business case is clear, the world case is clear. I mean, obviously you're doing a lot of work and I, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, you you won Male Agent of Change last year. Yeah. What did it mean to you to win that? You know, recognition of the work that you did? Does it give you a platform to be able to move on with the work? I was, uh, personally, I was so honored to win that award. I was I was completely startled when they <laughs> called my name and I had to walk through this big room to go up and accept my award. It was it was a bit surreal, but, mm. you know, afterwards I thought about it, I thought, look, it was, it was lovely to get that, but it really just kind of emboldened me to say, okay, I now have a bigger responsibility to bring more men into this, to really reach out and get more men to become male agents for change and to show that, look, you don't have to do a lot to move the needle, you know, just, you know, do something. And I, when I addressing, uh, you know, these events and I'm speaking to men in the room saying, look, don't worry, just reach out to somebody or go to a colleague and say, look, if you want to talk about this, I'd love to talk about this, or I'd love to learn more about this. And I'm seeing more men do that. And that's a really positive thing. and gives me hope in the future that more men, as they build their own career trajectories, will understand that, the rules of the game, as they've been defined over the past 10, 20, 30, 50 years, need to change, and they need to facilitate that change. Some men will not get this, mm. 
Mm. They'll never get this. But I think if we can get more men to engage in this, that will help us to move the needle and better measure the results as time moves on. I just wanted to actually touch on that, um, just to get your opinion uh, on. So last year and the year before, there were a number of books that came out about the quite the uh, toxic masculine culture of Silicon Valley, for yep. example. Where does that sit in all of this? Is is that a, is that a minority or is that something that uh, is a tech industry specific? Sadly, I think it's probably more pervasive than we think. Mm. Um, you know, those books that come out, I don't think they're the exception. Um, I don't think every company is as dreadful as some of the ones that have been published. <laughs> and thank goodness for that. At the same time, I always say to people, look, this is happening out there. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes people realize it and intentionally do these things. And I think sometimes people are oblivious to it and don't realize the implications of this. And so when companies are doing these bad things, I think they should be named and shamed. You know, I think things like the Me Too movement are great because it's getting people to wake up and understand the way things have worked have got to change. And, you know, I applaud many of these women who've spoken up about how they've been treated. Um, and, and every day now we hear all kinds of examples, not just from tech, but across all industries, across politics, government, et cetera, of the types of, frankly, crap that's going on out there that we just can't tolerate anymore. It's, it's you know, time to change this. And I think collectively this, you know, these movements like the Me Too movement you know, some people will be put off by it, but I hope others look at this and say, Ooh, I've got to, I've got to do something about my behavior. I didn't realize I was doing this, but clearly I am doing this. And, um, I don't want to make this something that keeps going on for, for years to come. What, what do you tell your sons? I mean, do you, do you give them any specific kind of, when you're talking about the landscape of, yeah. uh, but diversity and inclusion, or do they just grow up with different expectations, I well, guess? Well, actually, I have to say, you know, I have been heartened, you know, they're, they're between 25 and 20, and, and, you know, their views on the world are very different. And sometimes when you talk about these things, or you share some of these things, I think they're equally baffled that, is this really going yeah, on? Did this happen? They're all yeah. <laughs> now entering the workforce themselves, and they're starting to see the things that are happening out there. And, um, you know, between you know, my wife and I, you know, we have collective experiences over the years where we've shared this. You know, my wife, Leslie, worked on oil rigs in the North Sea, you know, when she was in her early 20s. She was the only woman. How did you meet her? <laughs> Actually, well, we, we, we met in graduate school. Oh, she, right. she had Not come from rig. the North Sea to come in, and we met at graduate school in Boston. Um, but the stories that she tells of her experiences of being the only woman on a, on a drilling rig, you know, that is intense. ingrained in my <laughs> sons in terms of being open-minded about these things and knowing that women can do whatever's possible. So I think it's through our experiences that we've passed on to them. And I, and I hope they've taken that on board. I think they have. And, and, and hopefully, you know, they will now manage things in a way that is much more open-minded. Mm. Absolutely. Laying groundwork for the next generation. I hope so. So I, I, I'd just like to finish with a, a general question. Sure. What, what would you like to see in five or 10 years? What's your ideal scenario? Yeah. I think for me, if we can see so many more companies embracing this notion of diversity and inclusivity, and companies are moving on that trajectory, but I, I just think if the pace of change can go so much faster, 
that would be fantastic. You know, if we come back in five years' time and, and London Tech is 30% women rather than 17 or 20%, that will be heartening. Mm -hmm. We know we still will have a long way to go to get it to 50 50, you know, being reflective of the population. But if that happens, if we see more women emerge as great role models from all kinds of businesses, if we see more men being recognized as male agents for change who've helped women on their journey to make things different or to set the tone in their companies that is different from the way it might have been in the past, those to me will be very heartening. There will be days when I know we'll hear stories and we'll just bang our head against the wall and say, how can this still be happening? But I hope equally we hear some real success stories of people who said, actually, you know, this company has moved from this position to that position because they deployed great initiatives to make a change. And, and I hope we will see that in the next five years. All to play for. All to play for. Let's, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. Rush thank you very much. Thank you, Anna. And thank you all for joining us as well on this Every Woman podcast. And we look forward to continuing the conversation with you next time. Don't forget, in the meantime, there's a wealth of information, interest and further talking points on the Every Woman Network and app if you want to access on the move. So until we meet again, have a great day and keep on living your best life. <laughs>